You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, let's pray. Father, in your mercies, we want to thank you for having fed us this morning with your word, and I pray that you will bless us during this time together as we think through uh, these psalms. And uh, Lord, in this Advent season that we're entering into the yearning and the longing that comes from a recognition that we are both in your kingdom and yet not fully in your kingdom yet, I pray that you'll fill us with hope and joy as we uh, in, as we go along the way uh, toward the heavenly city. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So I don't assume, I know a lot of you were not in this class uh, last week. Um, I'm trying to look the room. Yes, I see some of you are not in here. So, um, and that's fine. Uh, just, I'll put the card br- briefly in reverse. Uh, just to kind of give you a sense of what we're doing in this class, and then we'll move forward. My plan was to do um, four, a psalm, I think five psalms today. Um, but, you know, we, we recognize how these things go. Um, <laughs> Now, with, with that said, the Psalms of Ascent are the Psalms that we find after Psalm 119. And they're the Psalms that we also find in what is referred to, if you look in your, in your Bibles, you'll notice that the book of Psalms is divided, or I should say are divided into a five-book structure. So you have the first 41 Psalms, and then, then 42 to 72 is book two, then 73 to 89 is book four, I mean book three, then book four, and then book five. Right? So there's a five-book structure to the Psalter, and in this five-book structure, it's meant to mirror something, right? I mean, what when you think Old Testament and five books, what, what do you immediately think of, right? You immediately think of the, the, the Torah or the, or the Pentateuch, the, uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy. So in this actual structuring of the book of Psalms, it's meant to reflect and to sort of mimetically correspond to the, the, um, the Pentateuch, the Torah, and that tells us something about what we're to expect when we actually begin to read the Psalms. The Psalms are human words to God. They, they, are, they are composed within the throes of life, and all of life lived in God's existence, from the mountaintops of joy and thanksgiving to, to the valleys of despair and despondency. Uh, the Psalms are ready made for you through all the twists and turns that your life takes. Prayers are ready for you. Um, as I mentioned last week, you know, we, uh, I've got kids and this, you know, my, my, my kids are, you know, the most humbling aspect of my existence. Um, and, uh, and, and if I can use sort of an old sort of southern way of talking about it, we, we have to, to learn our children how to speak, right? Um, we gotta, they gotta be learned. And, uh, and, and, and I, and we, we find ourselves, you know, uh, constantly, I hear, I pull up to the Advent school in the morning and, and we do it every day and I'm, I get to drop them off and, and every day I say, remember to say good morning when you get out. I mean, th- why? Because they have to be learned. Um, the, the Psalms are, are God, sorry, but learning us, uh, uh, teaching us what He expects from us and what He allows from us and are talking uh, to him through all of the vicissitudes of life. 
And that's what's actually so amazing about the Psalter is the kind of risky things that the Psalms allow you to say to God because God doesn't want you indifferent to Him. God wants you living all of your life before Him. All of it. So when you enter the Psalms, you have that sort of deep feel and that five-book structure is telling you, yes, these Psalms are human words to God, but more so than that, the Psalter is Torah. The Psalter is instruction. The Psalter is God teaching us how to speak to Him. Um, and so here we have these, these, this little collection of psalms on the far side of the longest psalm, Psalm 119, buried in book 5. And if you think about how the structure of the psalms move from beginning to the end, once you start getting toward the end of the psalms, it's, it's like following Pilgrim on the way to the celestial city. The music starts. Um, it's, if any of you sort of worked through Dante's Divine Comedy, you'll, you'll know, you'll remember that once he gets into the Paradiso and he moves closer and closer to the throne, to, to where God actually resides in the Paradiso, um, music starts to happen, right? And that's what happens in the Psalter as well. When you begin to move closer toward what the Psalms are moving you toward, now you begin to sense this, this sort of feel of unending praise. Uh, and sometimes the kind of praise that can make, you know, Episcopalians sweat a little bit. I mean, there's tambourines and, you know, cymbals and people are kind of getting a little too excited about Jesus and you keep it down. But that's what's happening uh, when you get uh, to the end, end of the Psalter. All right. So with that said, I, I posited last week for us maybe to just think about what it would mean to read the Psalms of Ascent um, as Advent Psalms. And I don't think that's an, in, that's an imposition, or at least a, a false imposition. Because these Psalms of Ascent, these 15 Psalms, are Psalms that are all going along the way toward somewhere. They're, they're pilgrim Psalms. They're psalms for the, for the, for the, for the pilgrims who are on a journey. Recognizing that as Christians, we live in the tension between two realities of our existence. Number one, we plant our roots deeply in a place. We, we become part of a place, and that matters, our place. And how that place shapes us in ways that we know and we don't know. And yet, at the same time, Christians don't belong to a place. Uh, we recognize that our citizenship is already a citizenship that's in another place in another time. And we live into the fullness of that tension. That is an Advent tension. That's a tension of recognizing, yes, Jesus has come to this place. He has inaugurated His kingdom. But Jesus has not consummated His kingdom yet. We're waiting for that day. And these psalms are ready-made for us. They're, uh, I, the, um, the sort of mental image that comes to my mind is the you know getting on a horseback with your uh, you know your saddlebags there? These are the psalms that you slide into your saddlebag along the way, uh, ready made for you to have a kind of prayer book that prepares you for what it means to live into that Advent tension. And so when we looked last week at Psalm 120, which was the first of the Advent psalms, I mean of the, of the psalms of ascent. This I call them Advent Psalms. I'm, I'm going to do that, I think. Um, the Psalms of Ascent, we saw that Psalm 120 began with the psalmist in distress. In my distress, I called to the Lord. So you're moving here from distress to the temple. That's where the movement is taking place. Out of distress and anxiety, I call to the Lord. Now, what I love about this, and we're going to see it more before we're done today, 
What I love about this is the psalmist is not Pollyannish about Christian existence, about existence lived before God in this world on the way to somewhere else. Um, John Calvin in the, in the Institutes said something to the effect of, there are those Christians out there who think that, that mourning and loss um, and sorrow are not compatible with Christian faith. And, and then Calvin goes on to say, that's some kind of Stoicism or maybe Epicureanism, but that is not Christianity. Christianity allows within its very fabric the reality that we still live in the tension of a world marked by the fall, and that brings all kinds of ramifications into the things and the people that we value the most. So here the psalmist is saying, on your way out of the gate, on this pilgrim journey of yours, do know, and we've all read Pilgrim, many of you read Pilgrim's Progress, you know, this is not a, you know, the straightest, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, right? That is not the Christian life. It's not a sort of a straight line. Twists, turns, valleys, mountains, out of my distress, I call to the Lord. And you remember that there are these sort of bizarre references in verse five to Meshach and Kedar. Remember that? Woe to me. I was talking with Miss Verna here this morning about some of these strange names in the Bible. Well, here are two strange names. Meshach and Kedar. One found near the Caspian Sea. One found on the Arabian Peninsula. Not around the corner. Right? So it's a, kind of a bizarre collocation to think that the psalmist is saying, from these two places I've come. Well, well that, that's, that doesn't seem to make sense off the surface, geographically speaking. So, well, so what's the psalmist doing? I think what the psalmist is claiming is, I'm coming from a far place in space on this journey that's going to take time and it's going to take a long duration as we get to where we're heading. Um, and that whole reality is one that can be marked by distress. And that sets us up for the psalm that we wanted to really get into today as we move into the others, which is Psalm 121. Okay, So it's from distress and then into Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Why the mountains? Uh, why the hills? Now, now some will read this phrase and this verse, I lift my eyes to the mountains from a negative standpoint. Now, now you recognize when we get into the Psalms, we're dealing with poetry and poetry has a kind of effective um, sensibility to it that always that can't always be reduced to propositional statements, right? I mean, that, that's that's why uh, poetry um, elicits all kinds of responses from us when we when we read it. And, and I have to admit, you know, I've grown into appreciating poetry more and more. But it's 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 a hard. I mean, you you all maybe some of you try to read T.S. Eliot like, what the heck is this guy talking about? Like, <laughs> April's the cruelest month. I kind of like April actually. I mean, what's going on? Anyway, um, so when you get into the psalm here. I mean, the point is, the images that are used, and, and the Psalter is marked by a heavy use of imagery. But the images aren't self-interpreting, that's what I'm trying to say. Metaphors aren't always self-interpreting. Uh, and, and by the way, we don't live our existence apart from thinking in terms of metaphor. Well, that, that's how we make sense of our world. Metaphors are not ornamental um, salt and pepper that you put on the soup to just finish it off at the end. 
Metaphors are the ways in which we actually make our way through the world by looking at our shared lived experiences and comparing things so that we can make sense of what it is that we're actually doing and thinking and feeling in this world. But metaphors aren't always self-interpreting. So I lift my eyes to the mountains. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is that a, is that a situation where you're down in a valley and you look up on the, and you're in battle and you look up on the mountains and there it's the enemy surrounding you? Some read that this way. I don't read it this way. Okay. I actually read Psalm 121 verse 1 um, positively. Why? Because the mountain here, think about these pilgrim psalms. Where are they going? Right? They're moving to the temple. And I mentioned this last week to you all. I, I spent one day in Jerusalem, but whenever you go to Jerusalem from wherever you're coming, you're going to have to at some point go what? Up, right? You're, 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 because Jerusalem's a city, it is a city that's set up on, on a hill. You're going to have to go up. Um, and the temple is there. See, they're moving toward the temple. I lift my eyes to the mountain. Uh, the mountain standing in for Mount Zion, which is related to Jerusalem, which is related to the temple. I lift my eyes to the mountain. But the mountain image in the Old Testament expands beyond this. Um, mountains are the places where God tends to reveal himself. Uh, the, the technical terminology is theophany, right? Um, so here you have uh, the children of Israel are on the plains of Sinai, and there's Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai before them, and God calls all of them up to the mountain. Do you remember this scene? All of you come on up here and to, to a camp meeting with me on top of Mount Zion. I'm going to reveal my will to you up here. You remember what happens? They all come out of their tent. They see the smoke and the lightning and the flashes up on the mountain. And they're like, hey, Moses, how about you go up there for us? And uh, uh, send, us, send us a postcard uh, while you're up there. They all go back into their tents and Moses goes alone. Why? Because God's presence, which is everywhere, that's true. We all believe that God is omnipresent. But we also recognize that God's presence can be especially present at certain places. Think about this from a Christian theological standpoint. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Well, were you not around before? Well, of course he was. But there's a dynamic of God's own self-giving and self-revealing that can take place in special places. And a mountain in the Old Testament is the place where God tends to reveal himself in his fullness. It's not an accident. Um, that when uh, the glory of Jesus Christ is unveiled for a few moments, that it happens where? On a mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. There's Moses, and there's Elijah, and the voice of God speaks, and Peter you know, says something stupid, and then uh, the voice uh, continues to speak, and Peter opens his eyes, and it's just Jesus left there where? On a mountain. Um, I should, as an aside... I should also say this as well. The mountains are often as well um, used as God's location for his judgment too. Uh, Micah chapter 1, God comes off of his throne and sets his foot on the mountains and they begin to melt like wax underneath the, the heat of his anger. Um, that, that is very much related to what we find um, in the Gospels when Jesus is dying on a mountain as well. And so this mountain imagery in the Bible is, is rich. I lift my eyes to the mountains. All of the the sort of associative imagery that you bring to bear with the mountains from the whole of the Bible, I think it is not, it's not irresponsible to heavy freight all of that into Psalm 121, verse 1. God reveals His judgment. He reveals His mercy. He reveals His will. God reveals Himself on the mountain. And that's why I look to the mountains, because that's where my help is coming from. Why? Because that's where the Lord reveals Himself. 
the one who made heaven and earth. He's not going to let your foot be moved. He doesn't slumber. Um, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. If you want, and by the way, these Psalms of Ascent use particular terms in each Psalm that, Psalm that, that tend to function as a kind of leitmotif or the main theme of the Psalm. If you want to know what I think might be the main word of Psalm 121, I think the main word is keeper. He keeps us. He watches over us. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. See, this is the pilgrim's hope in the midst of the reality of the distress that's already been mentioned in Psalm 120. The Lord's going to keep you from all evil. He will keep your life from distress and confidence along the way. And here is a pilgrim's hope um, in Psalm 121, verse 8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The Psalms force us, especially these Psalms, force us to think and to hope in uh, in the future. All right, so let's let's flip the page. Let's go to Psalm 122. You, still, you haven't checked out, have you? You still here? Okay. So here's Psalm 122. We might call this Psalm a, a pilgrim's ode uh, to Israel. I was glad when they said to me, "Let us go to the house of the Lord." A Saint Augustine, in his commentary on the Psalms describe Psalm 122, verse 1, as a Christian's hope for heaven. I think that's a fair reading here. You know, Jerusalem, as an image in the Old Testament, has a kind of elasticity to it. Yes, it relates to the city, but it also relates to the heavenly Jerusalem that we we look forward to when, in the image of, of the book of Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth merge with the old heavens and the old earth in such a way as to take it over. The, the heavenly Jerusalem and the earthly Jerusalem become one. Right. So you have that kind of future dimension, eschatological dimension built in here. Um, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. House of the Lord is another term in the Bible for the temple. Let's go to the temple. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now, I want to I, I have to be careful because I can lose you here. I can lose myself here. Um, but the psalmist here and in a few other psalms plays with time. Now, our experience of time, and we can't escape this, our experience of time is necessarily linear. We live past, a present, and future. Now, now, you all know that none of us can genuinely experience the present because the present comes and then it's gone. You know, like I'm, I'm going to say, say the word psalm in two seconds. Psalm, and now it's past. You see, we just, we, we can't grasp the present. But by, by the way, um, I'm off script here, but I, I think. That reality is something I think that taps into the rise of, well, how would one say this, or existential consciousness in the early 20th century. I mean, think about the kind of literature that comes out of the early 20th century that's riddled with problems and, and the struggles of being a self. You know, it's a Kafka, you turn into a cockroach. I mean, what, what, what are we really? Um, what does it mean to be a self? And, and by the way, I think those questions that were generated early 20th century are with us to this day in even more pronounced ways. And I think part of the angst that we live in as we raise that question is we don't know what it means to be in the present. 
because we're moving and we can't grasp the present. Um, to, to illustrate this, because we're in the season, we call this the, uh, the the depression of Christmas Day for kids. Right? I remember this as a, as a child. Um, C.S. Lewis was so right when he said the greatest joy is in the wanting, not the having. Right? All the anticipation that builds up for Christmas morning, and then you think you're going to get what you're going to get, and you and you arrive on on, on on Christmas morning, you run downstairs. I can still remember this as a kid. You get your stuff, and it's so exciting. But by four o'clock that afternoon. The depression starts to settle in. Is that all there is? And, and, and even if you got everything you wanted, it's still a, is that all there is? But we know this, now that's, that's, a, that's a sort of, man, that's a real illustration, but think about this on, on the level of our relationships with the people that we love. Um, what does it mean to be present in a moment with the people that we love? Because we're always conscious that it's a moment we cannot grasp. And you cannot hold on to that. My dad's not here, but I've, I have, I've felt this a few times. I feel actually a lot thinking about like my parents or my dad on a fishing trip, right? Um, or doing whatever, you know, going, we, my dad and I eat oysters together. I mean, going and eating oysters together as he drinks his second martini. It's okay. That's right. Uh, I'm just joking. Um, but you know, we're there and, and I've, I can, I just, I, the moment is there, but it, it but it cannot be grasped where it's, it's moving. Um, God doesn't experience time like we do. This is a classic view of Christian theology. God, we are past and future. God is an eternal present. All things are equal to Him at the same time. He gives Himself to our temporality, but all things are eternally present to Him. And that's why the psalmist can fiddle with time in a way to help us even understand that our own identities aren't necessarily confined to our temporal experiences. That's why the Apostle Paul can say, I'm already a citizen of heaven. Paul, no, you're not. You're, you're, you're in Rome, by the way. And, 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 and living in some difficulty because you're living in Rome at this time. No, but I, my, my true identity is already an identity that's fully present in the heavenly city. Well, the, listen, listen to the language here. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing. See, this all gets funny with time here. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Um, since we're not going to get to it, I'll, let me skip to you because I'm, while I'm on the topic. To so Psalm 126. Without doubt, one of my favorite um, at, uh, Psalms of Ascent, at least for right now. L- listen to the time, the temporal issues here. When the Lord has restored, or He has restored, it's the past, the fortunes of Zion. We were like those who dream. And our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. So do you see that? This is the, this is the moment of rejoicing on the far side of God's restoration of all of their fortunes and their dreams. And, and when that happened to us, Lord, when you did that for us, when you restored our fortunes, we were like, we're like children. No, we didn't. We didn't know how to contain our joy. Um, we just sort of erupted in in thanksgiving and praise with our singing. It was kind of like that scene where where King David and the Ark of the Covenant is coming back after having been captured, and he's bringing the Ark back. And and David, who's the king of Israel, if I can use sort of our, our colloquialisms, he forgets himself. Right? Uh, he 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 begins to dance. 
in a way that kings probably shouldn't be doing. Uh, and his wife is a little put out by that. And uh, she, she chides him for embarrassing the sort of royal throne. And David didn't care. Now, he, he had lost himself because the Lord had restored their fortunes again. Uh, the, all, all that had become disoriented was now reoriented in the way that it should be. And he was rejoicing. That, that's what they're saying here. This is a psalm, by the way, that's probably linked to Israel's being released from captivity captivity by the Persians to come back after the exile. So we've come back. And when we're on our way back to Jerusalem after exile and after Cyrus gives us not not just the green light to go back, but he gives us all the temple treasure. He gives us the resources to go back and build an infrastructure again for our city. We we were like children. Because all of our dreams had come back together when God restored our fortunes. Some would say this is a mistake. I don't think it's a mistake. Look at verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Like streams in the Negev, think the southern region, in the, the desert area. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall com- come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Do you sense the tension there? When the Lord restored our fortunes, we were like those who dream. Verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord. See, that's the, that's the pilgrim's tension. Um, that's the tension that we live in, recognizing that, and if I can put this in Christological terms, or let me put it in Advent terms. That's the tension that we live in, recognizing that we will sing those Christmas carols when it's the right time, right? We're a little... We've become liturgical fundamentalists in our home on this. No Christmas, you know, all Advent songs till we get to Christmas, right? But once we get there, it's like Easter Sunday morning. We're, we'll let the joy to the world ring out because Christ has come. He's restored our fortunes. And we, we are like those who dream. It's a dreamlike state to think that God has done what He's done for us in the person of His Son. It's remarkable. Who believes this kind of nonsense? People like you and I do. And we put all of our hopes on it. But He's restored our fortunes in this baby in a manger. It's remarkable. And we sing with joy for that. And then, and by the way, I don't know if you've ever noticed this liturgically, somewhere right after Christmas, they have the, the reading of the killing of the holy innocents and the martyrdom of the death of Stephen. That's intentional in our, in our, in our lectionary cycle. That's good, actually. Why? Because that moves us into verse 4. But still we know we need our fortunes to be restored. We're still in hope of the future consummation of the fact that we know you have restored our fortunes, but our fortunes are not yet fully restored. And we look forward to that day when the kingdom of God will be consummated in its fullness so that the death of holy innocence never happens again. Restore our fortunes. That's the, that's the tension that we live into, and that's the, the sort of fiddling with time um, that the psalmist and the Bible can play with. Why? Because Christ's first coming and His second coming bleed into one another in such a way that you cannot have the one without the other. The one assures the other. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the age of the resurrection of the dead as if we are in it right now. I don't feel like I'm in the age of the resurrection of the dead, do you? Right? I mean, knees getting creaky, back hurts. If this is a resurrected body, I'm very disappointed. Very disappointed. Right? Um, I mean, sometimes, well, that's inappropriate. I won't say that. Um, I I pulled back. I pulled back. 
I want to say, yes, this is, we are not living in the resurrection from one standpoint, but from another standpoint, we are. And that's again where Paul will force us to bend time a little bit, to recognize that that which has happened yields to that which will happen, but in God's eternal present, who doesn't experience time like you and I do, it already fully is. It already is. All right, one last psalm, then I'm going to let you go. Back to Psalm 123. Here is is the pilgrims, here is the Advent Christians governing perspective. I'll read the psalm, I'll make a comment, and then I'll pray. To you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, and here's the metaphor, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, and the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. What, what's, what's, I think, the point of contact here in the metaphor? Servants are at the mercy of their masters. Now, that's the metaphor. We are at the mercy of our Lord. And so the pilgrim's perspective is through all of the distress of life where we move in and out, and we all live it because we're, part, we're made of the dust of this ground. When we live into that world, the perspective that we have is what? Our eyes look to our master. Crying out to him what? It's the Kyrie eleison right here in Psalm 123. Lord, have mercy on us. That's the proper perspective of those who are just somewhere along the way. Lord, have mercy on us. Kyrie eleison. We are not our own. We are someone else's. And here's the beauty of situating Psalm 123 within the framework of the whole of the Bible. It's not an empty hope. For us to look to God to have mercy on us is to look to God in accord with how God has chosen to reveal Himself. God is merciful. This is why I love teaching the Old Testament, right? Because people tend to think the Old Testament God's a little cranky, right? And then the edges wear off when we get to, you know, when we find Jesus. Um, God's character in the Old Testament from beginning to end is patience and long suffering. He's the father sitting on the porch waiting for his wayward son Israel to come home. And if he just saw him at a distance, the father wouldn't wait for the son to come all the way in. The father runs off the porch. It's his character to have mercy. It's it's the way that God lives into His very being. He can't do otherwise. So when we as servants look to our Lord, our Master, and say, have mercy on us, we don't do that with a kind of empty hope or a question mark at the end. I wonder if He will. We say have mercy on us because we know to ask God to show mercy to us along the way is for God to act in accord with who God actually is. We expect it to be the case. God is merciful. So what's the pilgrim's perspective on the way as our time begins to bend into the future and the present and the past? What's our perspective along the way? We lift our eyes to our master and we say, Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy, knowing that it's in his disposition and it's within accord, in accord with his character that he will do it. He shows us his mercy and he does it in his son. So Lord, thank you for these psalms. They're rich. Um, this little... Packet, this little tractate of psalms for pilgrims who are living in this world. We're, we're so grateful. And, and I pray, Lord, during this season of Advent, that you will lift our eyes to the hills, knowing that our help comes from you. 
And Lord, especially that we'll lift our eyes to the hill of Calvary, knowing that in your Son you have demonstrated the fact that you are merciful. Your mercy and your severity are all found in Jesus. And we are safely in him, already citizens of another time and another place. Let that give us hope in the current moment and let it shape our identity in this moment now as pilgrims moving toward the heavenly city. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.